The Journal presents the Good Information Podcast. Hello and welcome to the Good Information Podcast, a series where the Journal gets to grips with 15 major topics that our audience has told us are impacting their daily lives and focusing their minds on the future. I'm Susan Daly, Managing Editor of The Journal, where the Good Information Project has been giving readers the opportunity to engage directly with editors and journalists on these issues. With you, we've looked at their impact on Ireland and on our place in the wider EU. In this episode, we are asking, how on earth do we tackle the climate crisis? Is it too late? Did COP26 change the world? Are Ireland and the EU doing enough to cut emissions? We'll answer these questions and more But here are some of the suggestions our audience proposed. China are opening another 1,000 coal plants next year. Russia are starting to mine in the Arctic for gas and coal and other resources. Brazil are cutting down the Amazon for wood to feed the demand for biomass wood and upping the amount of cattle by millions. Because they can see Europe cutting back on cattle, so they can see a demand there. So, basically, anything we do is a waste of time. And before all the do-gooders come on and say something is better than nothing, well, just wait to see how much comes out of your back pocket through taxes, etc. I think electric is the way to go. But really, we have to close all power stations uh, generating CO2. Um, We can invest in wind and uh, hydroelectric and wave technology. I mean, how much water flows up and down the rivers with the tides that we waste every day? I, th- I think we need to invest in solar power as well as storage uh, and the ability to feed individual generators back into the grid and, and pay for the surplus. We have to stop always thinking big, you know. Uh, loads of small sources can be used as well. And nuclear power is another option. When we overproduce electricity, then, and and not before, should we start to encourage people to switch. Tax the rich and close tax loopholes. The richer you are, the more likely your wealth came at the expense of the earth and the more likely you are generating far more CO2 than most. So what's the wider view? Here is Good Information Project producer Carl Kinsler with the details on how Irish citizens are impacted by political statements on the crisis, if indeed they are at all. A poll conducted by Ireland Thinks on behalf of the Good Information Project in October of last year offered a fairly damning indictment of the steps Ireland is taking to combat the climate crisis. A sample of 1,200 returned results showing that 56% of Irish people do not think the Irish government is doing enough on climate, far outstripping the third who do. The number of people who think the government is failing on the climate is a catastrophically high 88% among those between the ages of 18 and 24, and 71% among those between the ages of 25 and 34. Uncertainty is very low beneath this age, with very few respondents saying they don't know how the Irish government is doing. By the age of 55, more than one in six people say they don't know how well the government is doing on the climate. Dissatisfaction with climate policy tumbles the older people get, with just under a third of people over 65 thinking the government is failing, compared to over half who believe the government is actually doing enough. 
It's significant to note that even among voters for the parties in government, many believe that not enough is being done, including 40% of Fianna Gael voters and 30% of Fianna Fáil voters. As many as 69% of Green Party voters believe that their government is not doing enough. Ireland is relatively evenly split on the matter of the national herd, with 45% supporting either a reduction or a limit on the herd, while a similar 39% support having no limits whatsoever. Support for allowing farmers free reign in deciding the size of their herd is unpopular in Dublin at 28%, whereas in Connacht Ulster, 51% of participants are happy with the idea. Those between the ages of 18 and 24 have the least truck with farmers deciding the size of their own herd. Only 15% support it. This is more than double in the next age cohort up and continues to increase all the way up to 50% for those between the ages of 45 and 54. Nevertheless, virtually everyone in Ireland has made some change to their behaviour in order to help the planet, with just 5% saying they have done nothing. 87% report recycling more in recent years, and 71% have reduced their use of single-use plastics. A third of people claim to be eating less meat, and 40% say they are buying clothes less often. Recycling more often is the most popular change in every age group but one, with the youngest cohort focusing more of its energy on cutting out plastic. Changes in transport are less likely the older we get. 20% of the overall respondents report using public transport more and 15% say they cycle more. Only 8% have switched to an electric vehicle and just 13% use renewable energy to power their homes. Using public transport is much higher with young people, 77% for the youngest cohort compared to proportions in the teens for every generation over 35. Ultimately, more than half of our respondents believe that they are doing enough in their own life to tackle the climate crisis, 55% in fact. A third believe they're not doing enough. Again, deep divisions are revealed when looking at the age demographics. 71% of people over 65 believe they are doing enough compared to just 31% of 18 to 24 year olds. Young people are also more likely to believe it isn't their responsibility, however, with 12% washing their hands of the matter entirely. Irish people say they believe the burden for climate change is shared between the government, individual and corporations to the balance of 44%, 28% and 27% respectively. Young people who have the least faith in government to deliver also believe the government to be most responsible. The older a person gets, the more likely they are to point to individual responsibility. Thanks, Carl. Now, let's get some real on-the-ground information from the journal Climate Reporter Orla Dwyer, who has been reporting extensively on the crisis and spent much of last November at the COP26 International Conference. Welcome, Orla. Tell me this. Ireland's first carbon budget was signed off this year. Is it ambitious enough? So this depends on who you ask, really. So a carbon budget, for anyone who might not know, they essentially set out a limit on the amount of greenhouse gases that Ireland can emit over a certain period of time. So these are the first ones that have ever been signed off in Ireland, and they cover different five-year time periods. So the first one is covering 2021 to 2025. So, you know, we're already two years in to the first one, and... It's just been signed off there in, in the past few weeks. So it, it time is really ticking on these. Uh, the budgets, they were first proposed by the Climate Change Advisory Council last year, and then they were signed off in April, as you said. And this was seen as a really big move in itself, as you know, it further locks in Ireland into this climate action. It sets up a legally binding target that the country actually needs to stick to in terms of reducing its emissions and staying within a certain limit, which is really, really important. The issue people were having was with the limit themselves. So you had certain people saying that we should have gone a lot further, that the limit should have been a lot smaller, essentially, that Ireland should be emitting even less than these targets are setting out. And I think that is a really important criticism of them. So the Oireachtas 
uh, committee, the Climate Committee. So the Oireachtas Climate Committee heard from a number of experts earlier this year who were really critical of this limit set out, saying that they weren't ambitious enough. And this this kind of criticism was both based on Ireland's current output, which, as we can see from recent estimates, Ireland's emissions last year are still set to rise despite a drip, kind of a little bit of a drop between 2019, 2020. But a lot of that was was based on the pandemic. So because of this current amount of emissions that we are putting out and also historically, you know, the amount of emissions that Ireland has put out in this more industrial period of time over the past 100 years, we'll say in particular, there's there's been a lot to get us to the wealthy country that we are today. And historically, we have had this impact on climate change, even though we're not a country like China. You know, you do hear that argument peddled a lot as well. We are still a small country, but we are still having a significant impact on the climate. So we had some politicians even within the Oireachtas Climate Committee saying that it wasn't ambitious enough. So Senator Alice Mary Higgins, she was kind of very strong on it. She said the budget could have been strengthened when it was in its draft form. As, again, a wealthy country with historical emissions, Ireland should be doing more than average when cutting emissions. We had a lot of experts as well appear in front of the committee. I'm kind of reminded of Barry McMullen from DCU. He said that they should be a lot stricter. Uh, Professor Kevin Anderson from the University of Manchester was very, very critical of the government's action on climate. And he said that the challenges the country is facing now in staying within these still quite strict carbon budgets stems in part from uh, choosing to essentially ignore three decades of scientific analysis and advice. They were his words to the politicians in the climate committee. So there was no mincing of words here that a lot more still needs to be done. But but then on the other side of it, you have people like Brian Ledden from the Green Party. He's the chair of the climate committee. He was defending the level of ambition. So I was speaking to him a couple of months ago and he said that essentially aiming for anything higher than what is set out in this carbon budget just isn't realistic for Ireland. And that even the pathway to reduce the emissions as it's set out again in the carbon budgets, it is realistic with a whole of government report uh, with a whole of government approach, but it is still incredibly demanding. There's still a lot of work that needs to be done to get us to be anywhere on track to reaching our goals, which as they're set out in legally binding targets again, is to more than halve our emissions by 2030 and reach net zero by 2050. So these are going to require a huge amount of change. And as things stand, it is difficult to say that we are on track to achieve this. So having these carbon budgets in place is a huge achievement, but there is some legitimate argument that they could have gone a bit further and that they could have been made stricter as well. Orla, that is like a micro version of the conversations that I'm sure you heard when you attended COP26, because everybody's struggling with this, we're not doing enough concept. Could you give us your analysis of the outcome of COP26 and how it's been followed up in the aftermath? So there was a lot of hype around this this COP conference. There was a huge amount of discussion beforehand, a lot of coverage during it and some coverage afterwards. And then, you know, the natural drip, the natural drop off that we always see with these kind of conferences. And, you know, again, for anyone who might not know, it's it's Conference of the Parties. It's an annual United Nations climate change conference it takes place every year. COP26 took place last year in Glasgow. It was actually supposed to take place in 2020, but was delayed because of the pandemic. And it sees, you know, representatives from almost every country in the world attending meetings, discussions around climate change and at the crux of it, you know, making making commitments to reduce emissions. That's the main part of it. And also helping other countries deal with the impacts of climate change that we're already living with and as well pledging to do more in the years ahead. And again, that was a very central part of this particular COP. And what was interesting at this one and a lot of the experts I spoke to were reiterating this is that the discussion at this conference 
was not so much around whether climate change is real, which, believe it or not, was the discussion at, at previous conferences years ago. But now it's more, look, we have so much evidence showing that climate change is real. Here's what we're going to do about it. But the issue is that, as we heard from Greta Thunberg and other people who are critical of the conference, there is still a lot of blah, blah, blah. You know, there is a lot of talking the talk, but not necessarily walking the walk. You know, it is still kind of a lot of words, a lot of pledges, but not a lot of action. But there was some success from the outcome of this conference, not least in the fact that there was an actual agreement. All countries signed the Glasgow Climate Pact every five years at these conferences Uh, countries try to reach an agreement like this. So you might have heard about the 2015 Paris Agreement. That was the really significant one that pledged countries to stay well below two degrees of warming and ideally at 1.5 degrees. And that was really significant at the time and is still really significant now. And like it, it really set the pace for this agreement that was reached at COP26. But, you know, while there were some positives such as countries agreed to come back next year with uh, new nationally determined contributions. They were previously only every few years, and now they've agreed to come back every year with these new pledges for how they're going to reach net zero, for example, or that they're going to cut emissions by, you know, by the 50% by 2030. These kind of pledges that are getting more and more ambitious each year that still aren't necessarily bringing us to where we need to be, but are getting closer and closer to that point. Um, Another part of the deal that was considered a a success and might sound a bit silly and not very significant, but was the fact that fossil fuels were mentioned as well in the deal. That was seen as a huge breakthrough because that had never happened before in a COP deal. And again, you would think that that would naturally come with the discussion around climate change, but it explicitly said the word fossil fuels in the final agreement that was signed off by every country in the world, remember Saudi Arabia, China, the EU, you know, you had every country saying, I agree to do this. And that was really significant. And there was a bit of controversy as well. There was a last minute wording change. Uh, China and India, they were calling for a change in the wording around coal usage. So this was, again, sounds not as big now, but at the time it was very significant and is still significant in terms of the final deal. But the final text, instead of calling for accelerating the phase out of coal, it calls for countries to phase down coal usage which doesn't really mean anything is kind of what the experts I was speaking to said, is that what does phase down mean even? You know, that was kind of the main criticism is that these watering down of significant words and really crucial parts of the agreement, they're not going far enough. You know, we still have a long way to go to get to this point. And I spoke to to John Sweeney from Maynooth, who's been to many, many a cop conference, probably, you know, among the most uh, people who have been to the most COP conferences, but he was—he said, you know, the final text did have some positive aspects, but that the wording around fossil fuel subsidies and coal in particular, it didn't really compel anybody to do anything is what he said. And that the fossil fuel wording was, quote, watered down to the extent that it's pretty meaningless. So again, there was some criticism from activists, from academics, from experts in the field. We also had activists from the global south and countries that will be hit really badly from the impacts of climate change, from small island nations and things like that, that were, again, just generally saying, look, the agreement does not go far enough. It maintains the business as usual attitude that rich countries have been accused of maintaining when it comes to climate change. And it it just isn't bringing us to where we need to be. It isn't going to get us to limit global warming to 1.5 degrees, mm. which, again, is the point beyond which the disastrous effects of climate change are exacerbated with each degree of rising they're going to get worse. And and we know that. And the agreement that was signed at COP26 doesn't bring us to 1.5. It brings us to, to more than that. 
So it was a really significant deal. It was a really significant conference, but there's still a long way to go. And, you know, we have COP27 later this year in Egypt. So that'll be really one to keep an eye on as well in terms of looking ahead. And then more so in how things have gone since the conference then. Again, it's 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 kind of what you would expect in that things to a certain extent have gone back to normal. But what we have seen in Europe anyways, with the, the war in Ukraine, Russia's invasion, is that there's been a lot more discussion around energy security, getting off fossil fuels, moving to more renewables. And that has re- been a really, really important part of the climate discussion. But one thing that caught my eye from, from COP26 is that more than 100 countries signed a pledge to end deforestation by 2030, which is eight years away. You know, there's not that long to go. Deforestation is still a huge issue. But there have been a few reports in recent months saying that there's been little evidence of progress in stopping deforestation, in halting this issue last year, despite this commitment. So there is still a long way to go and a lot to keep an eye on in terms of these pledges. The other one was to, you know, cut down on methane as well. That'll be another really important one to keep an eye on and to kind of track. So we're still not where we need to be, but it was still a very significant conference and, you know, will still be something to keep an eye on in the months ahead. Thanks, Orla. And significant moves within, hey, this conference, we got everybody to agree on something, but in terms of the speed to getting us where we want to be, maybe not as impressive. And if we were to zoom back in then from the United Global Nations commitments, where does Ireland's climate goal ambitions sit in the context of the EU bloc? And are we still failing to meet our commitments? Now, you kind of indicated we might be. Um, So the EU... They've set out legislation to reduce greenhouse gas emissions by at least 55% by 2030. That's the most up-to-date one. They previously had a target of 40%, but with updated policies in the last few years, this has risen then to 55. And the long-term goal, which again is what the scientific evidence shows us is needed to maintain a, a livable planet essentially, is to hit net zero emissions by 2050. That's necessary, that needs to be done, and that's what the EU has committed to. It's what a lot of other countries have committed to as well, or some countries have committed to you know, net zero by 2060. But for the EU, it is at, at the latest 2050. And so Ireland's climate goals and the legally binding targets, as, as you know, they have to be, they're in line with the EU, essentially. So we've committed to reducing emissions by 51% by 2030 and achieving this net zero by 2050. And that was in you know, our latest climate action plan, it's, it's, it's in legislation. It is something we have to do. And it's no small feat. Again, 2030, less than eight years away. Emissions, as we saw from most recent evidence as well earlier this year, there's, there's estimates that show emissions are still rising last year. Ever since we've come out of the pandemic, you know, business has kind of gone back to normal. And we have a huge amount of targets to reach by 2030 as well, including, you know, rapidly, rapidly and vastly increasing the amount of renewable electricity we have, electrifying public transport, getting more people using public transport as well, getting more people cycling, walking to where they need to go and leaving the car at home, uh, reducing emissions from agriculture, which is going to be a huge challenge and, you know, cutting down the methane from livestock and things like that, reducing food waste, uh, retrofitting buildings from homes to public sector buildings, everything like that. And essentially getting people on board with these changes as well. That's going to be a huge challenge for politicians within politics as well. You know, getting every politician on board with these changes that are going to be necessary and also getting people behind this as well. Um, So the plans are there on paper. You know, Ireland has its plans in place. The EU has the plans in place. And we have everything written down. We have everything 
within legislation. And as well as our government leaders have been speaking very clearly on this, you can hear Michal Martin speaking about it. Even at COP26, he was accused uh, by a reporter at one point of sounding like a Green Party politician the way he was speaking on climate. But it is, you know, kind of what is necessary at this point. He is seemingly reading the science behind it. He knows what is ahead and he knows what needs to be done. And it is up to those politicians to get everyone to agree to this, you know, to get to get these plans in place and to prioritize climate ab- above all else in some cases. You know, it is a really important thing that we need to do. However, we are still seeing this gap between words and action, as we were talking about earlier. So the Climate Change Advisory Council, which again is an independent group that advises the government on climate action, they said last year they do an annual kind of report card for the government. And they said last year that there is still a significant gap between the climate policies in place and the plans actually being delivered and implemented. And Ireland also failed to meet its EU target to reduce emissions by 20% by 2020. Uh, Emissions did drop between 2019 and 2020, again, because of the pandemic. But we do have recent evidence showing that they were planned to rise last year. And we'll get more official figures on that later this year. So it's clear we still have a long way to go. Um, it's, It's difficult to say how much more needs to be done, but there is a huge amount needed and huge systemic changes needed as well. And it really needs to be prioritized by government in the years ahead, even more so than it already is, both on paper and both in the actions that they are actually fulfilling. So there are a huge amount of challenges still to come. Thanks, Orla. A universal issue with comprehensive solutions, challenges and needs everybody on board. We'll give the last and hopeful word to John Gibbons, who took part in our Open Newsroom webinar. Previously, hope was a passive um, expression. I am hopeful that somebody somewhere is going to fix this. I think where, where hope starts to become real is when people roll up their sleeves and get stuck in. So for me, I see hope in action. Hope as simply expecting something to work out for the best, I think is, is uh, naive. But we are seeing more action. As I think I said at the very outset, I believe this is being spurred by the reality that we are having our feet held to the climate fire around the world. More and more countries are directly experiencing the costs of climate breakdown and are coming to realize that they've been listening for years to economists saying, oh, it'll cost money to fix this. But it does cost money to put out a fire in your front room, but it costs a great deal more to let your house burn down. So the hope that I see is the hope of people getting out, inconveniencing themselves, getting getting out, buying fire extinguishers, spending some money on climate action and getting stuck in. But I'm very much against the notion of passable. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Good Information Podcast. Today's episode was edited and produced by Adrian Carty with research by Carl Kinsler and additional journalism from the Good Information Project team. Go to thejournal.ie to find out more about the entire Good Information Project and email us at goodinformation@thejournal.ie with your feedback and questions. If you want to hear more episodes in this series, find us at the Good Information Podcast on the Journal app or wherever you get your podcasts. The Good Information Project is co-funded by Journal Media and a grant programme from the European Parliament.